Welcome to another episode of our NP Clinical Series podcast, where we discuss all things NP Clinical practice and offer some pearls of wisdom along the way. Let's jump right into the conversation. Hi, I'm Jonna A. Neal, and thanks for joining us again for another episode of our Clinical Series podcast. And joining me today is Dr. Sally Miller. Dr. Miller, would you like to introduce yourself? Good morning or afternoon. Yes, I have to stop saying good morning or afternoon because I always pick the wrong time of day. Anyway, so yes, my name is Sally Miller. I have been with Fitzgerald Health and Calibri for, oh gosh, Fitzgerald Health for over 20 years in a variety of capacities. I teach several of the uh, certification review programs, the pharma, the, the big pharmacology course, the long one, the pathophysiology course, a number of psychopharmacology, a number of clinical things, and so now I have the opportunity to work with you and do some podcasts. I, um, I I have been a nurse practitioner for almost 30 years. I have a really varied practice. I am certified in both primary care, well, uh, primary care, acute care, and mental health. My primary practice activities these days are a primary care arm and a mental health arm. And um, I think that's all that's relevant right now. That's a lot. That's amazing. <laughs> So I'm really excited about this particular episode because I actually reached out to Dr. Miller. I read this article and I was like, great. I've learned something brand new. There's brand new things in prescribing. Did anybody else know this about bipolar disorder and metformin? So let me set the stage and then let Dr. Miller really go through what's what. So the article that was super interesting, it talked about patients who have bipolar disorder and they don't respond to, say, traditional mood stabilizer medications and treatments, and how metformin has been really um, pivotal, maybe really good in the way of this is a possible treatment to help folks that have bipolar, bipolar disorder, excuse me, that aren't responding to the regular treatment that we're talking about. And it really had a lot to do with insulin resistance and things that are way above my head and my pay grade. So, Dr. Miller, what is going on? How does metformin work in this way? How is a drug that in my mind, I'm thinking, let's for type 2 diabetes. How is this helping patients with bipolar disorder and the insulin resistance? How is this even connected? So I re- I really am excited to have the opportunity to talk about this because it is it could be pivotal. It is a complete paradigm shift to use a healthcare word, and you know all new trends s- start somewhere, and and this may be the start really of something very new. This this question or this concept of using metformin to manage pe- patients who are treatment resistant to bipolar disorder. It emerged from a researcher in Canada. So I do want to you know, make sure everybody understands that this is a single research study. And so it may be the start, it may be at the very top of the pyramid, but like all good evidence, it will need to be examined, it will need to be replicated, it will need to be trialed and controlled. And so there's a, there's a long way to go here. And so, so I just, a, a word of caution, it is a really cool idea. There may very well be something to it, but 
Unfortunately, what happens sometimes is in, you know, in day-to-day healthcare, most of, most of us who spend most of our time actually in clinical practice, you know, all day long, we don't have hours on end every week to dive into the latest research and critique the studies and, and go into all the experts. We pick up our journals, we get our, like our news flashes on professional newsletters and things like that. And we see something like, oh, metformin treats bipolar disorder and think, oh man, okay, metformin, it's fairly benign. It's safe for most people. It's going to treat bipolar. Let's try it. And then so all of a sudden, the next thing you know, everybody with bipolar disorder has a prescription for metformin. And for the most part, they probably wind up with diarrhea and abdominal discomfort and not a whole lot of control of their bipolar disorder. So, I, I mean, this this really is interesting, and there really there very well may be a role for it. But we just want to make sure that we we do it right and we employ the the appropriate controls and critiques, so that when we do use metformin in the patient with treatment resistant bipolar disorder, we have the best outcomes because patient selection is a really important part of it. So can it, I mean, can we use metformin for bipolar disorder? It appears that there may be a role for metformin in a very specific patient population. But before we even get there, there's a whole lot of other considerations first. Yeah, thanks for framing that up because, I mean, that's an important thing, right? It's really exciting to read the research and then think like, this is something new, right? It's a novel thing we're going to start doing. You definitely want to run with that. But thank you so much for framing that up because I think the research part is so important that we are really, you know, aware of that piece too. This wasn't this wide thing across the world. So um, in that article, and really just in, from your experience, if you can help kind of set the stage a little bit and talk to us about metformin and insulin resistance and the connection even with bipolar disorder, how did we, how did we even land on that? How did we discover that? Well, so, so there's a couple of pieces here and I'm going to, I'm, I'm trying, I really want to do a good job with this because it isn't, it is an interesting concept and there may be a role for it, but I just, you know, I just want to make sure as best I can that I'm communicating this appropriately. So first up the study that from which this arises. And I think the study was published almost a year ago now. Yeah, so it's, yeah. but it got picked up, I want to say by one of the more, more contemporary things that we use every day. And that's why it's getting attention now. But the study actually was published by a physician out of Canada who observed that in one of her patients with bipolar disorder, an MRI of the brain, which was done for another reason. I don't think it was done because the patient was bipolar, but an MRI revealed that there was a leak in the blood-brain barrier. And so that's one piece of it. And then for a variety of reasons, the patient was started on metformin. And then it appeared that coincidentally, the blood-brain barrier had repaired or improved or you know, the, the integrity was restored. So the interesting thought was, hmm, can, can metformin uh, restore integrity of the blood-brain barrier and what's that got to do with anything? And so this this physician researcher theorized that um, with with an impaired integrity of the blood-brain barrier, that viruses, bacteria, some sort of antigen or irritant was making its way through the barrier, causing irritation and inflammation in certain neural pathways that could exacerbate the symptoms of bipolar disorder. 
So, so that would be, that would be one connection there is that could an impaired blood brain barrier introduce irritants that could result in inflammation in certain specific pathways that could exacerbate symptoms of bipolar disorder. So that's the theory, that's the working theory from which she developed this approach. So like, so what does that mean and how does that all happen? Um, holding, holding on to that thought for a minute, before we, we even go down that pathway, I would just remind everybody to consider that if you have a patient with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder and they are on medication and their symptoms are not improving, you think it's not helping their bipolar disorder, before we even start getting into insulin and metformin and blood-brain barriers, always, as just a matter of good practice, if a patient's not responding to medication, the very first thing we do is go back and confirm our diagnosis. So if you have a patient with bipolar disorder, they're on meds, they're not improving, go back and revisit, is it really bipolar disorder? As best we can in mental health, I mean, we don't have objective studies. It really is all about symptom assessment. And there are other conditions that are easily confused with bipolar disorder. The classic one is borderline personality disorder, which does not respond to bipolar medication. So first up, if you think your patient's not responding, let's back it up and make sure as best we can that it really is bipolar. If it is, so now we really have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder and the patient's not responding to drugs. The next question is, is it the right drug? Is it for the appropriate amount of time? Have we given it a fair trial? And that too can be complex in bipolar disorder because in the management of bipolar disorder, we have medications that are known as manic-minded. In other words, their efficacy is in acute mania or hypomania. We have other drugs that are depressive-minded where their efficacy is in the depressive pole. And then yet we have other drugs who really don't control either pole acutely, but maintain stability to keep the patient from cycling. So you could have a patient on, quote, bipolar meds, but it's not the right medication for the patient. Classic example, lamotrigine is a mood stabilizer and it is indicated for maintenance. So it's like it's, it's, it's a, it's a comparatively safe, well-tolerated drug, doesn't have all like the side effects, the monitoring requirements. It's a favorite of the primary care provider in bipolar disorder because it's it's so easy and it's so safe. And it is it is indicated for the stable patient to keep them from cycling. But if your patient's having manic symptoms and they're on lamotrigine, of course, it's not going to work. Nothing to do with metformin and insulin. It's just that it's not the right drug for the mania. So principle one, confirm the diagnosis. Principle two, ensure that it's the right drug for their place in the bipolar spectrum and that the dose is appropriate. And if it is, because we do have patients that don't respond to the appropriate medications, then the last thing you want to consider before, you know, before getting novel is, are they really not responding or do we or the patient or both not have appropriate expectations. I mean, responding to drugs doesn't mean they'll never have a mood swing again. It doesn't mean they'll never get a little hypomanic or they'll never have maybe some depressive days, right? I mean, treatment of any disorder, including bipolar disorder, typically does not include the complete eradication of symptoms. So before we even say the meds aren't working, we just want to revisit our expectations for symptom control. So 
if we have the right diagnosis and if we have the right medication and if the patient really is not responding to medication, well, okay, then that's when we want to start to consider this concept of insulin resistance. So, you know, we've weeded out the patient population here. It's, a, it's probably a comparatively small fraction of patients. So now what about this insulin resistance thing? So I guess the and the best way I can phrase this is that insulin is a hormone and most hormones and enzymes have numerous roles in the body, but there's often one that's just more clinically obvious or clinically relevant and one that we commonly associate it with. And for insulin, it's fuel storage. Insulin is an anabolic hormone. Its job is about protein storage, muscle building, fat storage, that kind of thing. So when we think of insulin, we think, okay, this hormone facilitates intracellular movement of glucose, intracellular movement of protein, and then storage of all three fuel sources, fat, protein, and glucose. And that's what insulin does. And so as it, it stores fuels, it, it, puts them in place, has them in storage, right? Insulin is counter-regulatory to the stress hormones like cortisol. So when the body is undergoing a stress response, whether it's an emotional stressor like, oh my gosh, stressor, I'm so stressed, or a physical stress like malignancy, a metabolic disease, an MI, you know, a lack of sleep, like whatever the stressor may be, when the body goes into a stress response, it mobilizes fuel so that the cells have the fuel they need to combat the stressor. So cortisol is a secondary stress hormone. If your body is managing a stress, cortisol levels go up to mobilize fuel, which is counter to what insulin does, which is to store, store fuel. The relationship of them is inverse. Cortisol mobilizes fuel, insulin stores it. So if you need to be mobilizing fuel, if you're fighting a stressor, you increase levels of cortisol. Cortisol actually promotes insulin resistance. Cortisol makes it harder for insulin to do its job. And if you think about what's going on, it makes perfect sense. If you're trying to mobilize fuel so you can fight a stressor, you can't be storing it. You know, insulin can't work. So cortisol inhibits the actions of insulin. Cortisol creates insulin resistance. And in the healthy, otherwise normal patient, that's totally fine. So like this whole concept of hormones have multiple jobs. We just only know the one that they do. I think the first thing here is probably that insulin does other things that we don't know anything about. Insulin has to have other roles in the body we don't know anything about. And it may perhaps have a role in actual repair of blood-brain barrier insult. And the best analogy I can give people for that is, you know, think of ACE, angiotensin converting enzyme. We all know about angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors and they're used to control blood pressure. And when we give an ACE inhibitor, we block the action of angiotensin converting enzyme and our blood pressure goes down. But we also know that ACE inhibitors can make a patient cough. And the reason they can make a patient cough is because they have a whole separate role that's really different where those angiotensin converting enzymes, those enzymes actually help clean up the lung from inflammatory products. Like if, well, you know, if it's just a, an exposure to an environmental thing or maybe a little asthma or smoke or like whatever, when you get inflammation in the lung, 
ACE actually debrides it and helps heal it. So if we give an ACE inhibitor, yes, blood pressure will go down, but we also inhibit that enzyme's ability to debride the lung. And that's why some people cough. So there's probably something very similar going on here with insulin. Insulin probably has some role in neural pathway protection, um, and we just don't know yet what it is. We do know that cortisol, right, cortisol as the, as the stress hormone, as the mobilizer of fuel, cortisol also has this impact on a hormone in the brain called brain-derived neurotrophic factor or BDNF. And I'm, I mean, I'm not making this up. This is very well described in the literature on depression. One of the theories of why certain people become depressed is it's called a dysfunction in the HTA axis, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And, in, you know, in the normal healthy patient, when you fight a stressor, your hypothalamus releases a hormone that makes your pituitary release a hormone ACTH, which makes your adrenal gland release cortisol. And then cortisol helps you fight the stressor, which is good, but cortisol also suppresses brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is bad for your brain because your brain needs BDNF. It helps protect neurons. It helps neurons grow. It helps neurons um, develop appropriately, and it helps with synaptic transmission. So BDNF is good. Cortisol is bad for it. And in an acute stress reaction, it's fine. Usually, you fight a stressor, then your cortisol levels go down. So then you're not insulin resistant. You're not suppressing BDNF, and life goes on as it should. But it could very well be in people with insulin resistance there is also a corollary to that insulin resistance is leading to suppressed BDNF. And that's how we wind up with symptoms of, you know, exacerbations of bipolar or difficult to control bipolar. So I hope I, I, hope I did a, a good job of explaining <laughs> job. this. I mean, how, how it could work. I mean, I don't know. It's not my research. It's not my theory. I'm just, I'm hypothesizing here. How could this be? But I think, it, I think it's an absolute given. I mean, we know for sure that hormones have other actions than those we recognize. I mean, this is how science starts. You notice something accidentally or serendipitously. Hey, this difficult to control patient with bipolar I put on my metformin for something else and all of a sudden their bipolar improved. How could that be? So what I'm just what I'm offering is one suggestion about how it could be. We know that there is a relationship between the anti-insulin, you know, and insulin resistance and and impairment to BDNF. So it's probably also going on in some other pathway or some other realm that we don't know. So if we give a medication that it, that helps minimize insulin resistance or improve insulin sensitivity, it's not a stretch that improving that insulin sensitivity also helps insulin do other things that it might do, like support neuronal growth, development, good synaptic transmission, and integrity of the blood-brain barrier. You explained so. that amazing. Well, if somebody publishes it in five years, you heard it here first, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> it really is just a theory. <laughs> that really, that really does make a lot of sense. And you know what I was thinking as you were talking about that? When I think about insulin resistance, right? Just in my my own understanding, and as a and as a nurse, right? I think about the signs and symptoms that we learn about it, like how to identify 
insulin resistance, not just through like labs in this way, but even through physical assessment. And I know that the one thing that I'm thinking about when I think about insulin resistance, I think about weight, right? And we sometimes we talk about overweight and that type of issue that, that, you know, comes with that. Is there a connection between bipolar disorder and weight that, do you see where I'm going? That could lead to like, I think also this person, we should really think about insulin resistance in them too. Is, is there any type mm-hmm. of connection there? There, I mean, there may very well be. Uh, certainly weight is the biggest contributor to insulin resistance there is. I mean, it's just mechanical. Insulin binds to an insulin receptor on cell membranes. And cell membranes, they're lipid. They're like, they're dynamic. They're not like a cement wall. You know, they're just, it's an assembly of a bunch of fat cells. And so when someone is obese, they get intracellular accumulations of fat as well. And it distends the cell. Cells can easily distend up to five times their normal volume and still remain intact. But, you know, they're all distorted now. The membranes are all pushed out. The receptors are all messed up and the insulin won't work. I mean, it just makes logical sense that there's like some element of this going on in these neural pathways as well. And hopefully someday somebody will figure out what it is. I guess if I was 20 years younger, maybe I'd jump in the lab and try to figure it out. But but there, but there's there's just got to be something to it. Now, if there's a relationship between obesity and bipolar disorder, that I really don't know. And I mean, that's a, that actually sounds like an excellent DNP project for some of our listeners, you know, to look into that and figure it out. Um, I, I don't know, but I, but I do know that like then the next like the next step with with this discussion that we're having is if your patient is not responding and they really have bipolar and they're really on the right meds and whatever else I said, you know, they really, the expectations are appropriate. Then look at the signs and symptoms first. See, is there any indication of insulin resistance? Is it a patient who could be insulin resistant? If the patient is obese, I mean, right off the bat, insulin resistance does have to jump up in your differential, but there's also other findings of insulin resistance like acanthosis nigricans right? The skin condition. But, but really, if you, if you have this circumstance and you think, Ooh, insulin resistance really might be a factor here, then you consider the patient. Now, remember, according to this study out of Halifax, I think she said approximately half of her patients with bipolar disorder were insulin resistant and about half of them improved when she gave them metformin. So we're still talking about a fraction here. This isn't a panacea, but if half of your patients are insulin resistant and metformin can help half of those, you know, it's totally worth a try. So, you know, how do you figure out if they're insulin resistant? Risk factors is always the first thing you look at. I mean, if the patient's got a BMI of 20, probably not. I mean, is it possible? Sure, anything's possible, but probably not. This is much more likely in somebody, you know, who has a greater risk for insulin resistance. But really the first definitive way is to just get a hemoglobin A1C. You know, you can do insulin levels. We do we do have lab tests for native insulin levels, but they're pricier, number one. And they they have to be they're, yeah, they're 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 not cheap. Insulin levels are, wow. are like easily twice the cost of a hemoglobin A1C, which wow. you know once in a while doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you start sweeping the population with it, could be a big deal. But the other thing is that insulin levels, they really have to be precisely measured. They're very dependent on things like circadian rhythm, diurnal variation, 
um, and, and, and food, relationship to food and ingestion. So for an insulin level to really be accurate, it's got to be collected under very controlled fasting circumstances. And you usually have to do it again because you want to confirm your baseline. It's like, it's not the most precise test. There was a time when everybody and their brother would order it. And then we found out that, you know, just really wasn't all that helpful. It didn't tell us much we didn't know, except in very precise circumstances. But the hemoglobin A1C is going to be one of your earliest clinical indicators of insulin resistance, because even before you become, quote, diabetic, the hemoglobin A1C will start to creep up. So if you got your bipolar patient and you've gone through all those screening questions we talked about and you think, hmm, maybe insulin resistance, check an A1C. Maybe it's 59 or six, or 5.8, or, or or it's elevated above normal, but not meeting the criteria for diabetes yet. I mean, that would be good enough for me that, you know, that is good enough for me because I do have a patient who is exactly this. I used her as a teaching case with my student because oh, wow. she has been on every rotten drug under the sun. I mean, everyone I've done gene testing on her. It doesn't explain anything. Um, and I, I am as convinced as you can be that it is the right diagnosis because we've gone back through all of that as well. I mean, she really, and she, you know, she is an obese patient and her hemoglobin A1C, actually, it's just a little bit above six. So nobody's called her diabetic, but metformin's a good idea for her either way. So news to follow. I'll let you know on that one the next time, yeah. we, have a, <laughs> the next time we have a podcast. But that's, I mean, it, it really is about patient selection. So if you yeah. get the right candidate, and then you have any reasonable, um, any reasonable foundation to assume they're insulin resistant, put them on metformin. I mean, really, as long as they have intact renal function, it is a comparatively safe drug. Even if it doesn't help their bipolar symptoms, it's probably not a bad idea anyway if they're insulin resistant, but it, it actually might help make the difference. Now, again, always keeping in mind that that remission doesn't mean the complete and total absence of symptoms. It means that the patient can get through their day, you know, that they can, they're managing their mood disorder in such a way that they can function socially, occupationally, you know, a family, that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of ifs there, but it really is a very cool idea. You know, it, if it really it's is. the right diagnosis, blah, blah, blah. And if the patient is insulin resistant, it's very appropriate to give them metformin and and make some observations. And the last thing I would say, I think, but you know, you know, for the for the generalist provider or anybody who's going to do this, because diagnosing any mental health disorder like bipolar disorder is really symptom based. I mean, don't run out and do MRIs for blood brain barrier impairment because nobody's going to pay for it. No insurance company is going to pay for that. You can't do that. But what you can do is really do validated symptom checklist, symptom tools. Uh, we have tools based on the dig fast mnemonic for manic symptoms. We have tools based on the PHQ-9 for depressive symptoms. So like really document some symptom scoring in your patient. And then when you go back a few months later to, to evaluate it again, do the same symptom scores. It is not unusual for patients to not even think they're doing much better because their expectations change over time and all of that. But you can say, well, look, three months ago, your PHQ-9, you scored a 20. You were significantly depressed. And today, your PHQ score is seven. So there is measurable improvement. And let, let's sit back and look at why you don't think so, you know? 
So I would, the last thing I would say is if you're really thinking you want to try this route, because metformin is appropriate for anybody who's insulin resistant, whether they're bipolar or not. So if the patient's bipolar and not doing well with meds, try to quantify the symptoms as best you can, because then you can go back later on and do some comparisons. So it really is a cool concept. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great concept. And, you know, as you're, as you're saying this, as of right now, the screening that happens for, for folks that maybe you are screening for a bipolar disorder in a patient, does that at all include anything about insulin resistance or, or alluding to that now? Not today, right? Mm-mm. No, no. I mean, only the, you know, in terms of the questionnaires for bipolar disorder, yeah. the screening tools and diagnostic tools really are about mood mood character, mood instability, mood cycling. There really isn't anything that would that would chip you off to think that somebody might be insulin resistant. The only obvious thing, like I said, would be would be weight. Um, patients who are overweight, just because any adult, anybody over the age of 21 who is obese or overweight should have an A1C screening anyway from primary care. So you know, what the heck if they, if they haven't had one, you know, many patients in, in psychiatry don't even have a primary care provider. Like we're it. Um, Or sometimes, yes, they have one, but you know, they don't, it's like your average garden variety, young and middle-aged person. They're not all into this annual wellness exam and stuff like that. So it's very possible that our patients might not have had an A1C ever, or if they did not in recent history. Yeah, this has been so, so interesting. Thank you for talking me through this, talking all of us through this article and just, you know, that discovery there. But while we're talking about bipolar disorder and in treatment and kind of what's new, is there is there anything else that you'd like to share, even about treatment or recommendations or, or what maybe is coming down the pipeline? Well, with respect to bipolar disorder treatment, I, you know, all I can tell you is it, it seems like more and more we're seeing more indications for the antipsychotics to manage bipolar, even even the stable patient. It used, I mean, it was always a manic patient. We would give an antipsychotic to just try to calm them down acutely and then rely on mood stabilizers for the long haul. But now more and more antipsychotics are being used um, long term for bipolar management, mania, depression, stability, the whole thing. So that's kind of cool. But in a, in a related topic of conversation, which has to be for another another podcast, because it'll probably be another half hour of conversation, is that this must be the year of like strange concepts coming out to us because another another article that was just very recently highlighted is coming out of, oh, I want to say the Netherlands or and it's like someplace where a lot of good science comes is is an article that now I'm going to paraphrase here, but basically says that everything we thought about as serotonin and SSRIs for depression like isn't true. <laughs> there is this there is this article and I, and I I need to dig into it further. So, you know, in the interest of time and accuracy, I know we're almost out of time here, but coming forward, maybe next episode. Yeah, there's the, and it is a meta analysis. This isn't like some little one off, you know, observational thing. This was a meta analysis that really dug deep into SSRI efficacy for depression. And the assertion of this author is that the whole amine theory, the whole serotonin theory of depression is not accurate. And so, I I mean, I, again, there is probably, there there may be a very small subset here. There, There may be more to it. I mean, it is true that there has always been this undercurrent of 
do SSRIs really help? Like, is it really that it makes a difference or is it placebo? I mean, even though very commonly SSRIs are the first line drug for uh, major depressive disorder, um, even, you know, generalized anxiety disorder, they've been in use for decades now, but there's always been this little bit of undercurrent. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I, I just will say clinically, I think there are not, I think, I mean, there are without a doubt. And there is an entire cohort of patients whose lives have been absolutely changed by an SSRI. They just are. There's just no getting around it. There's no rationalizing it some other way. SSRIs truly have improved depressive and anxiety symptoms for a wide variety of people. Are they overused? Probably. You know, are there people in whom they don't produce much of an outcome? Absolutely. And I've always said that I, that's because they are, they don't actually have criteria for that disorder. They don't actually have that disorder. But this researcher, who certainly is a more, you know, a skilled researcher, not like me, just having an opinion, seems to feel like the whole amine theory of depression might not be quite right. So yeah, we'll uh, talk about that in another podcast. Yeah, more on that because that <laughs> mega. Talk about rocking the world. Thank well, you. And you know, I've said to you in other podcasts, this happens all the time. Yes. You, you might remember the lipid thing with lipids yes. going boom. Um, aspirin to prevent heart attack. It's like, boom. So hey, maybe something to it. This we'll is see. your 20-year rule, I think, right? That's Just wait right. 20 that, years and it rolls right. back around. <laughs> that's right. The SSRIs, they hung in a little over 30, but yep, it all comes back. Oh, my goodness. Dr. <laughs> Sally Miller, appreciate you so much, as always, for joining me, for joining all of us and just giving us such great knowledge. Thank you again for, for everything. My pleasure. And thank you to everyone for tuning in to our NP Clinical Series podcast. We hope you'll join us next time for another discussion. And if you'd like any information about what we discussed today or other topics, just check us out on FHEA.com for our course offerings. I'm Jonna Amiel, and on behalf of myself and Dr. Sally Miller, thanks for joining us. Goodbye for now. For more information about the topics discussed during today's episode, please check out Dr. Sally Miller's course offerings on FHEA.com.